working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Bart Robley. Bart is a perfect example of a full-time musician that stays busy by diversifying his workload through teaching, performing live, recording, as well as publishing educational materials. For close to two decades, Bart has been the drummer for the Sam Morrison Band. To date, the Sam Morrison Band has recorded eight CDs with legendary producer Michael Vale Bloom. His credits include work with Madonna and Pink Floyd. The band has sold over 700,000 downloads on iTunes and has been streamed over 10 million times on Spotify. They have a new Christmas CD coming out on November 17th of this year, 2018. Bart has been involved in music education, teaching private and semi-private drum lessons, as well as hosting master classes and drum clinics for 20 years. Bart's extensive knowledge of drumming and rhythm has come together in three popular instructional books, as well as three instructional DVDs. Bart's efforts were recognized in 2009 when he won a Telly Award for his instructional DVD, The School of Hard Rocks. Before we get started, let's do our bi-monthly check-in on Arjuna Contreras as he makes the move from Texas to Nashville. Hey, Matt. Hey, RJ. How are you, man? Good, good. I'm in Dallas. I was in, you know, Austin for the last week. We did a run of shows uh, Tuesday through Sunday at the Continental Club down there in South Austin. Right, right. And uh, so, and then I... Stayed an extra couple days, you know, do my part to help keep Austin weird for a few days, <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, we're in. I'm in Dallas for actually for this week. I got some stuff that I'm doing with the band, some um, rehearsing and whatnot, and then we have a we have a, a gig here in Dallas on Saturday, and then and then on Sunday, where our record label is actually flying us up to Chicago to do um, a couple music videos for our new record. Um, I'm not exactly sure the value of a music video these days. Now that <laughs> you know, music hasn't been played on MTV for like a hundred years, but yeah, yeah. but but at least for online, you know, for YouTube and whatnot, you know, we're doing a couple couple music videos for our first uh, couple singles off the new record, and then and then uh, be headed back down to to Dallas after that because we actually play have another gig here next weekend. And then I'll finally be back in, in Nashville after that. It'll, I'll have been gone from Nashville for about mm-hmm. three weeks. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about <laughs> but, um, that, the, the working with the band uh, and them knowing mm-hmm. that you're in Nashville and you're kind of just kind of getting a lay of the land here. It, what's their reaction mm-hmm. been to that? Yeah? You know, I guess I would say mixed. Yeah. Well, you know, because I think, you know, the... Um, the assumption right off the bat is that I'm looking to leave. That is that I was looking to leave Reverend Horton heat immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, is, it wasn't, it's not really my plan. I mean, I was more, my initial, my desire to move to Nashville, you know, has to do with, you know, wanting to, you know, definitely be more involved in music when I'm not working with, with Horton heat. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, wherever that leads, it leads, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm a side man you know, in, in Reverend Horton heat. So, um, you know, it's no position is guaranteed for life, obviously. Um, and, you know, so I wanted to kind of start, you know, just spreading my wings a little bit and seeing, you know, what's happening in Nashville. Um, 
you know, and uh, seeing what can grow out of, you know, meeting people and, you know, having playing opportunities out there, especially during my downtime from the band. Right. It reminds me, there's lots of people that are living in Nashville now. Uh, Jay Weinberg, uh, Pete Parada, mm-hmm. guys that have Pete who plays with The Offspring. Uh, is a great example of people that have these great established gigs. Um, you know, Jay obviously was Slipknot. But for some reason, find mm-hmm. themselves in the off time. I mean, there's even examples of people who go on the road with artists out of Nashville, but then move back maybe to their hometown where they were from to be closer to family. So, sure. you know, so there's that opposite thing. I, I'm just kind of curious to know any of your doubters or naysayers, all you can do is bring it every gig and, uh, right. and like assure them, like, look, watch me through my actions. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take care of business here. Right. The couple guys on the on the Reverend Orton Heat team that doubted kind of my move have come around in the last, you know, now that it's been a couple months and they've seen that it hasn't caused any logistical issues and they, you know, they've told me, man, you, you sound better than ever, you know, and they know that it's like I'm not, you know, wasn't trying to like, you know, just use that band as a stepping stone to lead me to something else. I mean, I love playing with Reverend Orton Heat. You know, I, I still have other goals and, you know, dreams of, you know, in terms of my playing career that I'm, you know, I'm hoping to, you know, achieve. And so I feel like the time for me to move to Nashville was now because, you know, like I have, you know, pretty consistent income coming in and have some money saved and, you know, if I'm already like the River Norton Heat gig is basically, I would say, one of the biggest gigs that you could get out of Dallas Fort Worth, mm-hmm. you know. And if so, if I were to, if that band were to stop, you know, I'd be kind of left here, you know, and would be definitely taking a pay cut and would, you know, have, you know, not as many options as there might be if I was, you know, in in Nashville and had been meeting people. And I think it's really smart to use that downtime in a productive way, whether it's with, you know, and I see people do that all the time, building up their teaching practice or get more clients Mm -hmm. recording. And it's hard to, to commit yourself to other projects that require uh, a longer commitment. But if you have that and you prove your salt every time you're out there with them personally and Mm -hmm. performance wise, then, Hey, what's the big deal? You're being smart. Right. Right. And I'll tell you what, like some of the playing opportunities that have happened, like because, um, because of that band have been pretty special. Like this last week, we, you know, we had different guests with us each night, you know, that would come up and we would back them up, you know, with, on their music. And for two of the nights, it was the legendary accordionist, uh, Flaco Jimenez, you know, from, you know, the Texas tornadoes, but I have some cool pictures from that week. And, you know, there was, there was yeah, just a lot of really do. special experiences. Well, safe travels, uh, in the next couple of weeks. Thanks, and, man. uh, hopefully you get some laundry and, and coffee in and rest time and <laughs> practice time while you're here. And we'll catch up again in yeah. a couple more weeks. That sounds great, Mac. Good talking to you, brother. All right. Talk to you soon, man. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. If you want to support what we do here along the right side of the homepage on the Working Drummer website, you can find buttons for PayPal and Patreon, and any donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can follow us on social media, and if you want to be featured on Instagram, post pictures and videos of your gigs using the hashtag Working Drummer. We love seeing what you are all up to. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, 
and YouTube now as well. If YouTube is your choice for streaming audio, every couple weeks we will be putting out a group of 10 episodes for you to visit for the first time or for revisiting the Working Drummer Podcast archives. Please subscribe to this YouTube channel and leaving a rating and review on any or all of these platforms is very helpful for us. Here's my conversation with Bart Robley. Hey, first of all, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Monday, I assume, is like the get up and start time of your week, your work week, and uh, with teaching and, and all the things. So thanks for right. doing this. Um, and thanks to Isaac Sanchez for connecting us. Uh, what a what a great dude. Um, I, I Oh, dude, completely, completely. And and honestly, it's it's my pleasure. I do. Uh, Monday is the you know the start of my work week, like everybody else, teaching and stuff. But my first student walks through the door at two o'clock, so you know, no big deal. And and Isaac, yeah, you know what, Isaac, I got to tell my Isaac story real quick. He and I are um, uh, we're basically neighbors. I mean, he lives you know three blocks from me, and he's such a great dude. And he is this positive ball of energy all the time. I've never seen him down. The other day, this is no joke, the other day I was going to the grocery store. I was going to barbecue, right? So I went into the local grocery store up here and I was getting stuff to barbecue and I was walking out and he was walking in. I didn't see him. I heard his voice. He goes, Bart Robley. And I turn around like, hey, what's going on? And we stood there and talked drums, you know, as you do for, you know, instead of sitting there for five minutes, we stood there for half an hour. And when I went home, I was like, man, I just want to barbecue better than I've ever barbecued barbecued in my life you know I mean, he's just he's just such as he, he he brings out the best in people around him and i love that <laughs> and i do have to say the burgers came out pretty good you know i do have to say so i credit that to isaac <laughs> as drummers we're wired to create community and and, yeah, and build our I agree with that build our net worth through that community uh of uh, and He's just a great example and a reminder, uh, especially when um, things are uh, sometimes a, a, the work becomes uh, at, at times tedious as far as just, just sticking to a strict timetable and all those things. But not to get too right. far into that, but but um, he, he just uh, it's encouraging, man. And just it really it, it it's it's great. So I'm I'm, I'm glad to know. Yeah. Him. Yeah, he's a great guy, and and when he you know, when he hooked me up with you guys, and when I reached out to you, you know, I was so excited to hear back, and so thank you for having me on. I've had uh, I've been listening to the podcast for a while, and you know, a lot of my heroes have been on here, and and so to be part of that group, I I've been doing this my whole life. I mean, my entire life, I've been as far back as I can remember. I've had a pair of sticks in my hand, and I still every day there isn't a day that goes by that I don't just completely turn into a nerd about it. You know, I'm just, I just get all geeked out about it. And it's not to say, I mean, it's, it's very serious business. I mean, when I, you know, when I'm doing my thing, I'm very, I'm very focused and, and, and doing my thing, but it's still, I just, and it can be the simplest of things. You know, it can be a picture of an old Gretsch drum set or an old Ludwig drum set, you know, and like, oh man, look at the blue oyster wrap on that one. You know, I mean, just, I'm just a nerd about it. So being part of this podcast is just outstanding. And so I'm, I'm really excited. About awesome, it. man. Awesome. Um, so one thing I like to do is I like to start with saying, Hey, what's your week like? Uh, what's going on this month? What's going on this week? 
Um, and a lot of times in this business, there is an atypical week. But I know with some of my friends that teach, there is a little bit more structure because there has to be, especially when you're teaching young people. Consistency is key. Uh, right. So tell me about like what your typical week is like, what this week, what this month. I know you say that the band is slowing down a bit. The Sam Morrison band is, is not touring this time of the year as much. Um, so right. tell me about this week. So this week, uh, yeah, you're 100% correct. Um, there is not a typical week in what I do. <laughs> I do have, um, I have a lot of students uh, on my roster right now. Actively, I have 107 private students. And I see, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a lot. And I see, depending on the week, I see between 40 and 60 of them, you know. Um, so this week, the way that... Um, uh, it's working out. I will be teaching Monday uh, through Thursday. Um, I have, I always leave Friday open for two reasons. Number one, you know, a lot of times there's, you know, gigs on Fridays and Saturdays. So I don't really teach on the weekends unless I'm open for it. Uh, we're not gigging anywhere. I will, uh, I'll do makeup lessons on Friday and Saturday. Um, but uh, yeah, we're the band's slowing down this time of year. So, um, so this week will be packed with students uh, all day today, tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, and Thursday. Friday's off, and uh, um, I have a gig on Saturday. So that's kind of what my week looks like. I usually, and I use, you know, you know, the thing too about teaching is there's not really a typical start time because I have, I have. I take all comers when it comes to lessons, you know, I, so I have my, my youngest student right now is uh, five years old and um, I typically try not to take students younger than five for a number of reasons. And we can discuss that, but, um, and my oldest student is 84, you know, so 84 years young. And, uh, so I, you know, I might have him come over at nine in the morning, you know what I'm saying? So, so there's not really typical hours. He's already been up for like four hours. By then. Exactly. He's been up and he's, he's warmed up and ready to go. <laughs> and then, and then I have Skype students, you know, so sometimes if you have a Skype student that is on the other side of the country or in an, or in another country, you know, your hours are all weird, you know? So, um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of what my, my week, uh, looks like this week. And, uh, and, uh, like I say, a gig on Saturday night and, um, that's it. That's great, man. I, and I want to get into the teaching thing. I want to kind of dissect that and pull from your sure. experience. But but one of the first things I wanted to do is I, I came across an article when I was doing some research on you, and I came across this, and I want to get your perspective on it. Um, the title of the article, The Tragic Decline of Music Literacy and Quality. Yeah. Um, and, and, and essentially what this guy is saying is over the last 20 years, musical foundations like reading and composing music are disappearing with the percentage of people that can read music notation proficient, proficiently down to 11%, according to some surveys. He goes into talking about all the things that we, we are familiar with, the, de the decline in music and education since the 1980s right. and how, uh, you know, for a variety of excuses, founded or unfounded, the, the arts and other extra things have been cut from schools. Uh, and then he, he 
he dips his toe into a little bit about uh, the music that is popular on the radio. So the, the decrease in timbral variety, pitch variety, right. uh, dynamics mostly due to, in part to the overuse of compression. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and then he, he kind of closes out by saying music is, is designed to sell, not to inspire. He says that uh, after talking about the variety of music and that that encompasses all those qualities that I spoke of, uh, that w- that kind of pe- was at its peak uh, up to the 1960s, is what he claims. Yeah. Uh, but I would say up into you know more recent time. So when I read that, there's two things about that. One was the importance of reading and composing and transcribing that I know is yes. important to you in teaching. And the other thing, if you could, if you can remember these two parts here, the other thing is how, as a teacher, you meet this challenge with young students that are growing up learning music by hearing this very narrow type of music uh, if 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 popular music is is mostly what they're listening to and we all know we all know young people that know just about we all know 12 year olds that know as much about zeppelin as 50 year olds you know exactly <laughs> thank, thank, exactly thank god um <laughs> so um, and, and zeppelin's always a good one to turn to you know i mean it's it's uh i think i you know i, I wish i would have written down on a calendar the, the first time I heard Led Zeppelin and celebrated as a religious holiday every year because it changed my life. And I think it, I think it's done that for a lot of people, you know, I, I, I truly do. Um, so man, that's, that's a heck of a question and, and a, and a broad one. And I, and I carry it not only into my teaching, but into, into, uh, some experiences that I've had with, um, with just working as a drummer myself. Um, reading, I think, is uh, is so important to playing music. And what I start with, and 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 at first, this may sound like I'm I'm kind of hammering on a student uh, uh, in a negative way when they when they first start with me. But but this is what I tell everybody uh, with it, during their first lesson. And it doesn't matter if they're if they're a little kid or somebody's been playing for a while. And again, there's everybody's seeking different things in lessons. But reading is essential. If if let's say that you and I were were going to take a language class together, let's say we were going to take and it doesn't matter. We're going to we're going to we're going to take a Spanish class together. I'm not going to walk up to the, the teacher in the Spanish class and say, look, I just want to speak Spanish. I don't want to read it. I don't want to write it. I, I, I'd never want to do that. I just want to speak Spanish. So, so let's cut through the chase here and get rid of all this reading and writing. You know, you, you know, the teacher's going to look at you like you got three heads if you say that to them, you know? So, so I tell my students that I go, look, when you're, when you're learning how to play music and it doesn't matter what instrument it is, you know, you, you're learning a new language and you have to know how to speak that language and you have to know how to read the language, and you have to know how to write the language. We speak the language through our instrument. In our case, it's the drums, or a drum set, or a snare drum. Um, the uh, you know reading it 
you you want to be able to sit down someday with uh, with a book and read through a book and play through a book and better yourself as a player. Um, you want to sit down. Okay, Led Zeppelin. We've we've already talked about Led Zeppelin, which is a great way to start any conversation about drumming. I'm a I, I'm a firm believer, <laughs> you know. But uh, uh, you know, you you want to learn your favorite Led Zeppelin tunes. Okay, there are so many great great books out there and play along things that you can, you know, for Led Zeppelin alone, much less any other band, you know, I mean, you can, there's so much information out there now. And, and I'm, and I'm talking old school. I'm talking books. I'm not talking on the internet. I'm talking, go to the music store, walk into the, walk into the sheet music department, pick up a book and buy it and go home and read through it. You, you know, you have to understand how to do that. And so the way I'm now you asked how I approach that. I, I start with the lesson that way with the first lesson. I also tell them, and, and here I said a second ago, maybe this sounds like I would be being negative, but I'm really not because during the lesson I show examples and I show how it, be, how it turns into fun stuff is I say that the stuff that's going to make you a great player, the stuff that's going to make you a fantastic player it's not fun to practice sometimes, you know, I mean, it is sometimes you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, gosh, I don't really want to sit here and beat on this rubber pad. I just want to play the drum set and be Lars Ulrich, or I want to be, you know, whoever their favorite drummer is. And, and I always say, well, that that's fine. But every drummer that you see that's good at their craft, you're witnessing the end result of a lot of hard work. So you have to put in the practice time. You have to put in, you know, back to the 10,000 hours things. You, you got to put in the time, you know? So what I'll do is I'll start usually at that point in the lesson when I say something like that, I'll start with, you know, a rudiment and I'll, I'll explain the rudiments and what they are and where they came from. And I'm like most drum teachers, I'll, the first rudiment I'll teach is usually a paradiddle, you know? And I'll show, you how to show the student how to play a paradiddle. But then where I try to take it to the next level, and I'm, you know, I'm, I haven't reinvented the wheel here. I, I know a lot of teachers have done this, but I, I show how the paradiddle is applied to the drum set immediately. You know, um, it's not, it's not, okay, I'm just going to sit here on this rubber pad and right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. You know, I mean, it becomes mundane at that point and very uh, just stagnant. So I'm like, okay, now if I take this and I apply it to two surfaces and I'll, I'll just move my hand from like, let's and at this point I'm on the drum set, I'll move my right hand from the snare drum to the ride cymbal. And then maybe I'll move up to the bell of the ride cymbal. And then I've already got my pulse going in my left foot, but I'll start actually playing the hi-hat. And then I'll start playing a bass drum pattern against that. And you can see it in the student's eyes, especially younger students. You can see them go, oh, wow, that's really cool. And then Older students, and this is a whole nother subject uh, that we can get into. When I say older students, I'm, I'm referring to maybe somebody that's been playing for a while and they want to come and fill in a void that is in their playing. Let's say they've, they've, they know how to play, uh, they're in a band, but they don't know how to read or they don't know their rudiments or, and, or they haven't worked on technique and those are some of the areas that people will come to me for. And I show them how to do that on the drum set, the same, same thing, same exact thing. Let's just use the paradiddle for an example. All of a sudden at that point, then you see the light switch come on in that student. And they're like, oh, okay, now I get it. So I think at the very beginning of a lesson, at the very beginning of lessons with, with a new student, whether it be a young student or somebody that's been playing for a while, I think just showing them, you know, 
why we do these things and and the importance thereof is is uh, is paramount to to being a good player in, for in the long run and and to being a a good musician you know with as many students as you have how do you stay organized mm-hmm. very good question um the way I stay organized is I, I try to keep good records. You know, I mean, I break it down. I've got a, I've got a really good Excel spreadsheet set up. So, uh, again, like you asked me at the beginning of the podcast, what my week's like. So I, I get up in the morning, I fire up, you know, the Excel sheet and I see who is going to be coming. And, and I, in the, in the Excel sheet right beside their name, I will have a very brief note. It, it will make no sense to anybody but myself, but I have a brief note on what they're working on, you know? So if I have a student that's working out of my book, you know, I'll just have, you know, page 49 of, of uh, School of Hard Rocks, or if we're working on some left-handed stuff out of, out of Ted Reed's book, you know, I'll, you know, page 38, uh, Ted Reed, syncopation, you know, stuff like that. So I stay organized there. And then, uh, uh, you know, I, I kind of just, I'm, I'm ready when they get here, so to speak, because of that, I don't have to spend. And there, you know, there are times when, you know, maybe I didn't keep good enough notes or, or I'm like, Oh, that's right. I forgot to put that in my Excel sheet and they've, they've moved on past a new song. And as they were walking out the door, I'm like, Hey, let's try this and we'll do that next week. So, you know, there's those moments, but those are, you know, usually pretty forgiven, but, um, just staying on top of, you know, staying on top of it that way. And then, and then also one of the other things, and, and this is for all people who are, you know, for teachers and uh, aspiring to be a teacher. Um, one of the things that I, I also do, because I kind of wear a lot of different hats, I'm really fortunate that way that I do have a large number of students. I am in a band that does, you know, depending on the year, anywhere between, you know, let's say we can do on a slow year, we do 50 gigs on a good year, we do 100. You know, that's what we always shoot for. I tell all of my students, look, I really, really, really need you to be, and again, at the beginning of their lessons with me, you got to be flexible, you know? So, so if I'm not going to be here, let's say on a Thursday, because it's a travel day, you know, a lot of times we'll just, we'll, we'll miss a lesson. And, and so we take care of that at the beginning of the month. Or I also had said at the beginning of the podcast, I have a, uh, um, I have, I don't teach on Fridays or Saturdays. So let's say I, I'm not teaching on one day of the week, but at the end of the month, I'm not playing and I've got a Friday open. I'll just move all those students to that day for a, for a makeup lesson. And usually that's, they, you know, most people are pretty darn flexible and, and they, if they, if you have a good rapport with them and they, and uh, you know, they, they like your, your teaching and they like what they're getting. Uh, they're usually pretty darn flexible. So I just think it's that. I think it's, you know, being flexible. And I also think that it's uh, um, keeping good records and just being being organized, you know, in, in, in that sense of the word. And I'll, also in their books, you know, I put notes in their books. Okay, this is, you know, the date and what they worked on. And, uh, and you know, so they carry it around. They see it too. Is there a lesson plan that you work from? The lesson plan that I work from, and again, it every student's different. You know, uh, if I have uh, if I have somebody that's just starting and they've never played before, 
and they come in for their first lesson. Yeah, I start out. I have uh, the three books that I've written that I that they I start them in, and uh, and it's just real. Uh, at first, I start off with real basic. You know, depending on the age of the student, again, I'll start off with real, if it's a young kid, we'll start off with whole notes, half notes, um, quarter notes, and learning all your rests and everything like that. And then, uh, uh, you know, I go into eighth notes and sixteenth notes. And once I can tell a student understands, once they can kind of grasp eighth notes, we can go into the drum set and I start showing some real simple drum set grooves. Uh, and then I use, uh, Tommy Igo's groove essentials book and we'll, we'll, you know, once they can hold on to a groove at a certain tempo, okay, well now let's play along with this song. And then I teach him about, uh, I don't know. Are you familiar with that book? Yes. With groove essentials? Yeah. Okay. So I usually use his groove one slow, you know, and then I explain to them how it's a, it's a 16 bar turnaround and how the song builds upon itself. And then I have them read the chart and I tell them, okay, this is your goal. Hold on to the song. Don't get lost in the chart and land that last note. <laughs> you know, don't get lost. Make sure you're counting and land that last note. And then from there, we go into songs and reading songs and transcriptions. And once I, I get through with a student, usually about four or five tunes that I have transcriptions for here, they've gotten enough under their belt that now they can come to me and go, hey, look, I want to learn this song now, or I want to learn this. And then once you're at that level, it's kind of like, it's a, it's a free for all at that point. It's okay. What do you want to learn? Let's do it. And I think as a teacher, man, that keeps, that keeps me on my toes because you got to be able to play the stuff, you know? And so that's, that's kind of, you know, that's how I start out, you know, with, with a younger student. Because we're a working drummer and our listeners are all over the map, but a lot of them are working professionals, part of what you what we do is we wear many hats and we juggle yep. lots of things, and teaching is part of that. So I, I'm curious to know if, if, if you could share your experience with like building a teaching practice, what you've learned in the process when you started um, mm-hmm. what was the, what was the impetus for getting all this going and, and, um, and, and how, how does one, what would be your advice for someone that wants to start a teaching practice and build up to the hundred, 120 students? You know, it's a, it's a great question. When I was younger, um, you know, growing up in Colorado, I, I fell in love with with music and I fell in love with playing the drums at a, at an extremely young age. And I knew my whole life that that's what I wanted to do. My whole life. I knew that I wanted to be the guy in the band and that I wanted to connect with other musicians. And so that's what I started doing. I started like everybody else. I started in school band and then I started, um, uh, playing with my friends in, you know, garage bands doing that whole thing. Well, I, I wanted also to be able to make a living as a drummer and not necessarily wear the day job hat, if you will, which I have done for, for many years. I, I had to work a day job, but what I did was I, I just started teaching 
because that's what I wanted to do. But once I started teaching and I started working with students and I saw their progress, I fell in love with it because, you know, no matter how young or how old the student is, you can almost live through them vicariously because you see their success in things. So I think my my first advice to anybody that wants to start teaching drums, my first piece of advice to them is you got to like it. You got to love it because there's a lot of times. And, and when I say this again, this is not said in a negative way at all. There's going to be a lot of times when you have a half hour lesson coming up and there's a kid coming in and, and it's, you know, he's six years old and you're going to work on quarter notes and you want, you've got to, you've got to love watching that kid grow. And, um, so I think that's, that's number one. That's, that's number one. If you're going to do it, you know, don't take on the teaching thing because, well, I'm just going to do this till I get my big break and I'm playing arenas. You know, um, I've had the incredible, incredible good fortune to study with some of the greatest drummers in the world and have some amazing drum lessons. And I've had the incredibly good fortune to have some incredibly bad drum lessons. <laughs> now I say that because I've learned what not to do. You know, um, I've I've been I've been in lessons where you're sitting there with a guy and you can tell the guy doesn't want to be there. And I never wanted to be that guy. You know, I, I if I'm teaching, I want to give it my all all of the time, so that you know the student does walk away with a with a nugget of information that they have to go home and and practice. Um, and uh, so that to me was very important. And again, loving it. Uh, I've had the great opportunity to study with uh, with Greg Bissonette. And I remember one of my lessons that I took with him, uh, you know, sitting there and he was kind of tired. He's like, man, I'm sorry. I just got home. We were over. Uh, I was playing at Wembley Stadium and I'm just kind of still jet lagging a little bit. And I thought to myself, man, this guy really loves teaching because I'm sure he just played Wembley Stadium. I'm sure he's not doing this for the money. <laughs> you know, he's doing it because, you know, and I mean, and, and nobody's a nonprofit. I mean, everybody wants to make a living at what they do, but this guy, you know, I mean, you're sitting there with Greg Bissonette. I mean, the guy's a legend. And, and so I, I, I really take that to heart starting out though. It was, uh, you know, before I have a studio here at my house, I also have a, a studio in downtown Fullerton, uh, the town that I, uh, uh, that I live in here in Southern California. And, uh, I teach out of both of them, but before I had that, you know, I was, I, and I was making a name for myself. I would, uh, and this was also back home in Colorado. I'd go to students' houses, you know, I'd drive to their house and give a lesson and, and, and built it up that way, you know, just grassroots, you know, just, just having a good, strong work ethic. Um, and that right there, also is important. Make sure that you, you know, if you're going to do this, if you have a student that is, is waiting for you, don't leave them hanging, be there, you know, be there and be ready for it. Don't, don't, don't leave them hanging. You know, this episode is brought to you by drumsellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. 
I think clinics and master classes are something that that anybody that is going to teach, you got to kind of stick your neck out there and do it. You know, you you have to. And at first, that that can be incredibly intimidating because when you're doing clinics, you're playing drums in a room full of drummers <laughs> and, and, and getting past that, you know, getting past that and, um, and really focusing in on what you're doing. That's one of the things that I tell all of my students, um, that is so important to, to think about what you're doing, not how you're doing. Okay. So in other words, if you're, you know, what I mean by that, let's say you're having a you know, bad day at the job, you're having, you know, the gig's a rough gig or, 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 you know, you're the session, you're really, you're under a lot of pressure uh, during a recording session, or you're doing a drum clinic and all the eyes are on you and it is a room full of drummers. Don't think about that. Focus in on what it is that you're doing, not what other people are thinking or what, what somebody else might be thinking. And man, that's a, that's a tough one. You know, that's, that's, that's a real tough one. Yeah, it is tough. Do you do clinics? I do not. Uh, I I think about it as I think about expanding my teaching practice, uh, doing clinics and and schools and things like that. And and just that, 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 that's kind of why I'm asking is because I I mean, we've all been to many clinics and, and the idea of that. Uh, it's just right. like, it seems overwhelming, but, uh, but then we spend a you lot know, of time performing it, it in is. front of people all the time, you know? Right. So, you know, really helped me with it is, is I remember, um, I was doing my first clinic. I was doing my first clinic, um, with, uh, um, at, at a Sam Ash music here locally. And I was, I was just freaking out on it. So I, uh, I had taken a few lessons with Dom Famulero and so I, you know, I, I called him up and I was talking to him about all of my, my anxiety that I was having with it. You know, I'm like, God, you know, you know, and in my mind, you know, I, before the clinic, I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm advertising the heck out of this thing. One of the things that I'm really big on, and, and again, I talk to all of my students about and that I do is self-promotion. And I've been promoting the heck out of this clinic that I was doing. Right. So I'm, I've, in my mind, I'm like, well, what if Dave Wackel shows up and what if Craig Bissonnette shows up and then I get up there and I suck, you know, <laughs> you know? and you know, you got to kind of, and, and he just told me, he goes, you know, don't, don't think about that focusing on what you're doing. That was, that was a big thing that he said. And, and he said to me, think about, uh, you know, if you think about Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein, a lot of the scientists of his time thought he was an idiot, you know, but he still got up there and did his speeches, focusing on that type of stuff. So Famulero was really, really helpful to me and just, you know, uh, his words are, are always inspirational and, and paramount to helping me get the clinic going. It was, it was, it was very cool working with him. Yeah. And just taking that first step and just, just doing it, man. It's the roller coaster thing. You know, when you're, when you're going up the hill on the roller coaster, all you're thinking is get me off this thing. But then, you know, once the ride's over, it's like, do I have to get off? Can we just go again? You know. <laughs> I tell my sons that all the time. I said, look, you know, li- living and uh, taking chances and, and that's living life. That's doing, right. doing the things and, and just taking risks. If you never take risk and try and play it safe all the time, that, that, I'm sorry, that's just not living and, um, well, uh, recently on your, um, on your website, you have a professional musicians, 31 day video diary. Uh, I wanted mm-hmm. to ask about that kind of what was the inspiration Shoot. for getting that started? 
Okay. Well, what I did there, and and I'll be totally honest with 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 you on this. It was it was Sam uh, from the Sam Morrison band that that put that bug in my ear, and I'm uh, a lot of the things about being a drum teacher. You know, there's there's the point where yeah, you do sit there and you work on paradiddles and you work on cues and you work on grooves and you work on songs and you do all that, right? You do all that. But a lot of times drum students have questions that have, uh, and, and I've done this, you know, being a student of the instrument myself, a lot of my lessons that I'll take may not be a, a, uh, you know, how do I play cues? You know, maybe it is a business thing. And so, uh, I was, uh, uh, inspired by Sam to, to do it because, uh, we were talking and, and I was, I'm always giving advice to students on, on things that maybe aren't how to play the instrument. It's, it's just business stuff. It's, you know, like the, one of the videos that I did was on, uh, on endorsements and, um, and I get that question all the time. How did you go about getting all of your endorsements? How did you get, uh, you know, how did you build that? How did you do that? And so I did a video on that. And so, so the, the inspiration for that was just giving advice on, on not necessarily anything that was, was music, uh, playing related. It was music related and business related, but it wasn't, you know, how do you play the instrument related? You know, does that make sense to you? It, it totally does. And one of the questions I had is, is there, a, is there a key piece of advice you give to students that are interested in going into the music business? Cause I know you have a student that is getting ready to go to Berkeley. Uh, and so it, the, you, they're making the transition. You're like, okay, here's what you want to be ready for. Here's how we focus our, here's where you want to focus your attention at this point now. And a lot of it I know right. is, is, well, of course this is, we do this with the podcast. We're not spending time talking about paradiddles and, and all the technique. This is very much focused on just that, talking about business, talking about the, um, the all, all the things that outside the practice room and outside the gig are important to be successful. Oh, completely. You know, I mean, the thing that I that I tell all of uh, all of my students who are are gonna take that leap, right? They're gonna they they want to go to school, and and go to yeah. Okay, let's say they want to go to Berkeley School of Music, and that's where they're gonna go. Great. You're, you're going to learn a lot about music there and you're going to learn a lot about the music business there. And, you know, you, hopefully your entire life will be about being a better musician, right? You don't, you don't just get out of college. You go, okay, I graduated from Berkeley. I don't need to practice anymore. No, you, you know, you're practicing more and more and more. There's no magic drumming pill. You can't take a pill and poof, you're Neil Peart, right? You, you, you have to work at your craft daily. But the business end of things, you know, I think that's one of the things that, that a lot of people that, that do fall through the cracks because they don't realize that, you know, what I was, you know, what I said about the band, you know, on a slow year, we will do 50 gigs and we always shoot for 100, you know, and what it takes to do that is 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 overwhelming. So my days are spent, um, you know, like Sam does a huge amount of the work 
for the band. He does an, an unbelievable amount of work to, to, to make it work. But each one of us uh, within the band has other little jobs and tasks that we do to make it work. And so that was one of the things that I was trying to convey during those videos that, you know, when you, uh, again, what I said a minute ago about my, um, to, to younger students that, you know, when you see somebody um, on stage playing an instrument well, you're witnessing the end result of a lot of hard work. Well, now on the business end of things, okay, uh, you know, if you're in a band like mine that is a, is a working band, uh, and, and, and we're the one that's, that's taking care of the travel a lot of the time We're you know, there's an entity, we have, we have a lot of different agents that we work with, but there's, there's agents that we have to deal with. There's plane tickets. There's a tour bus. There is logistics of getting, you know, seven, eight, nine people into one place. There's so much that goes into it to make it work that just one gig, you know, you're witnessing the end result of a lot of people's hard work to get that band to where it needs to be. And so that that example that I give right there is just one of the things that I talked about, you know, during the the 30 days uh, video that I or videos that I did. And and then again, the endorsement thing, that was another one. So stuff like that, just kind of stuff that to if you've been out here doing it for a long time and you've been out here um uh, working and, and touring and recording and stuff, just stuff that I guess it's like any vocation, the things that become second nature, you know, but when you're young and bright eyed, you don't, you don't realize that. So that's kind of what I was talking about during, during the, a lot of those videos. There was a great video of you talking about working with kids. And then you have some examples of, of your students. And I mentioned the one that was going to Berkeley and man, they sound phenomenal. Your students sound great. And even the, you. uh, the, the young guy, I think he's five maybe, uh, but, uh, playing the paradiddle. This right. is so fun. It's just so inspirational and just solid. And I was like, man, that yeah. this is fun. He, and I'm early on in the podcast, Rich Redman was one of my guests and we've been friends since I moved here 20 years ago. And he's at a point in his career where he's like, it's time to pass this information on. It's time to take yeah. all the things and the years of expertise and pass it on. And a lot of times... I'm discovering a lot of times it's not about page 33 in Ted Reed book. It's about, right. <laughs> it's about, dude, I know your bass player is a jerk, but you've got to keep it together. <laughs> and, right. You know, right. <laughs> it, it, those kinds of things that I never considered when I was teaching, when I was younger, to share with my students, depending on where they were, or what they were doing. But it's like it's all those things that are sometimes uh, seem unrelated that is essential right. for their growth as a musician and being being successful in whatever capacity they decide with music. I think that's the hardest thing about about being in a band. What you just touched on right there. And I, matter of fact, in my uh, my first DVD. And here's a, a, a shameless self-plug. My, my DVD, The School of Hard Rocks, that goes along with my book, I won a Telly Award for that. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. And, um, and one of the things that I say at the end of the DVD, we were doing kind of like a, the, the, the producer, Trey Solberg, was doing kind of an off-screen question and answer with me. And th one of the things I said that, you know, being in a band, the hardest part about that is dealing with, with people, you know, dealing with the people in the band with you. And 
you always have to, at least I try to do this. I, I'm not always successful with it, but you know, if you're, if somebody's in the band with you and you're not seeing eye to eye with them, you know, and, and you're thinking, well, wow, this person sitting across the table from me is being so unreasonable. Well, they're thinking the same thing about you, you know? <laughs> so you have to learn to kind of have that active restraint when to, when to stand up when you have to, and then when not to, I've, I've been really, really fortunate with, uh, with working with the Sam Morrison band. I've been in that band for 18 years. Holy moly. I've been, yeah, I've been all over the world with that guy. And and Sam is is the he is the shining example of when not to say something. And he and he is such an incredible guy to work with and um we're still swinging at it and we're still out there working our butts off all the time. And yeah, you know, 18 years in a band with somebody, you're not going to see eye to eye with them all the time, but you don't keep a band together for 18 years because you don't have good players and you don't have, uh, you don't have the ability to work with people, you know? Um, and, and Sam is really incredibly good at that. He's phenomenally good at that. The band started out uh, like, you know, every other band. We had we we were doing a lot of uh, we're doing our originals and uh, writing and recording music, and we were doing cover tunes just to work, you know. And the the style of music that we were doing was kind of it's southern rock type of stuff, kind of like the Allman Brothers and Leonard Skinner and and the, that style of music, you know, um, Marshall Tucker band stuff like that. And um, and we had some Bob Seger in the in the uh, in the repertoire as well. And we were working at a place in Las Vegas. There's a room called the uh, the Railhead, and it was at Boulder Station Casino. And one of the bands that we were working with out there is another plug for another great band out there called Yellow Brick Road. And they were doing they were just doing every every style of of rock music you can imagine. And they were so good at it. They were just phenomenal. And they were they were all over the map. And like one night you would go see him. Well, the first time I saw him, I'll back up here. The first time I saw him, they were playing. Uh, the first song I ever saw him do was Brain Damage by Pink Floyd. And it was perfect. I was like, holy cow. So anyway, they were they were all over the map with what they do. They do Pink Floyd, then they do the Beatles, and they do Rush, and they do Van Halen. And they would do tribute nights. Like they go, okay, tonight we're going to do a tribute to Rush. And they would nail it. And the next night they would go, we're going to do a tribute to the Beatles. And they'd do Beatles all night. And they'd nail it. Well, through our working with them, uh, we saw them doing this. And Sam uh, would always get more requests for Bob Seger. And it was uh, um, not because of any other reason than Sam just sounds like Bob Seger. He just sounds like the guy. He doesn't try to. He just sounds like him. And we already were doing a few Seeger tunes. And so he goes, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we try to um, do, you know, like Yellow Brick Road. Let's try to do a tribute night and we'll do some music of Bob Seeger. We'll just do Bob Seeger all night and let, let's see if it works. Well, so he goes, all we'd have to do is, is add a, a, a female backup singer and a piano player. 
Well, Doreen Novotny, uh, we had already been working with her. She had sang with us numerous times, and and she had uh, recorded on our first album. So we called her up, and she was in. And uh, and then we added a keyboard player. At the time, is a guy by the name of Chris Daniels. And uh, we did a couple of shows, and bang, it took off. And so those are really kind of the three shows that we do. We have the, the, our original stuff. We have the Southern Rock stuff. And then we have the Bob Seger show. And in 2000, I believe it was 2007, uh, we got the attention of Michael Blum. That's why I mentioned earlier that we worked with him. He had started a, um, a record label called Titan Tribute Media, and uh, he started uh, recording some of the tribute bands that were playing all around the nation. And the first one that he started with was a group called Led Zepp again. And they're an amazing, amazing Zeppelin tribute. At the time, uh, great Jim Kersey was playing drums for him, a good friend of mine and just phenomenal drummer. And really nailing the bottom thing, you know, just he could play anything. But man, he was just killing the bottom thing. And so, uh, anyway, we got the, uh, he, we got his attention and he signed us to his record label and we, uh, went in and started recording the Bob Seger stuff. And because of that, uh, first record, the first record that we did was, was I stand behind it. I love the album. It's a fantastic record, but it was a three album deal that he signed us to. And, um, we, uh, we're supposed to go in right on the heels of finishing up the first album and record the second album of Bob Seger's um, material or re-record the music of his, uh, uh, his material. And it ended up being about a year, but we were originally told as soon as you're done with the first one, bang, we're to go in and knock out the second one. Well, the first record, we had obviously been playing those songs for quite some time. And, uh, so the second album, uh, we came up with a song list and a lot of the songs we had never played. And I knew right away, I was like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to go in and, and record this album as close as he wants it to the originals without transcribing the music. There's just no way. So I went to work and I sat down at the computer and stuck my head between the speakers and, you know eight months later I was done <laughs> and I was just transcribing and transcribing and transcribing and transcribing. And, and, um, one of the things that we learned what he also, what he didn't want, he, you know, he did not want our version of the songs. He wanted exact re-records. And, uh, and so, I mean, they, they had to be, they had to be perfect. And so, um, and on the first record, I mean, it's like any, any band that you're, you know, if you're out there working, you, you, you pick up a song by any band and you play it for six months. Well, if you go back and check yourself against the original recording, chances are pretty good that you're going to have swayed from that a little bit. You know, I mean, maybe it wouldn't be the whole groove that has changed, but maybe, you know, a drum fill or a certain little something that you've changed within the within the song after playing it for a while. And again, he did not want that. He wanted exact re-records. Um, the only thing he wanted changed and uh, was was tempos. He was really picky about. I mean, really picky about being dead on the click. And I'd I'd worked with a click my whole life, but man, I I learned so much from working with somebody of his caliber 
that I, you know, I really went to work there as well, you know, just working with the, with the click and, and, and reading. <clears throat> so, and incidentally, and what ended up happening in my, in my preparation for the second record through all the transcribing was I would build, I, or I would, I would transcribe the song. And once I was happy with the, the transcription and I knew that it was correct, I would, sit down and start playing along with it with the with the album and i'd be you know okay yeah i got this right well some of the hits that seeger had in the 70s were on live records live bullet nine tonight and so obviously those songs moved you know the tempos moved quite a bit um one song in particular was a song called get out of denver when he goes from when they went from the hammond solo to the uh, guitar solo the uh, charlie allen martin was a drummer and he pushed a little bit and you could hear it and i was practicing one day getting ready for the the sessions and i immediately it hit me like a ton of bricks i'm like well man he really wants me on the click and i'm doing myself a disservice right now i'm i really know that i'm you know, going to go in the studio and I'm going to push right here because it's natural to me because I'm practicing with the songs. Yeah. So I immediately quit practicing with the songs. I got a, uh, you know, the BPM is roughly here, you know, let's say 160 ish I would put on the chart. And so I just started practicing to the click and, and reading the charts. And so, and they were my transcriptions, but there's, I was reading them down. And so it helped my reading, it helped my playing with the click and, every record that I've done with him since that album, I have gone in and recorded just reading down transcriptions, no other musicians, just reading it down. And then we build it from there. Yeah. It's been, and, and that in and of itself is one of the best educations I've ever had. And so I definitely, definitely tie that into my lessons because I'm a firm believer that, the best teacher is experience, you know? And so passing that on to my students, that's a, that's a, you know, that's paramount in my teaching. I've discovered that as well. It, there's times when there's artists I work with that want me to play with a click live. That's a big thing here right. in Nashville. And, uh, so in preparation, I'll play along with the record, and then sometimes if it's tracked to a click, you can line up the click with the track and mix it both together. So you're like, oh, this is going to be kind of how it is. I've got the click and the track going at the same time. And right. then there's times when I'll play the tune down or maybe sections or fills or certain feels that I want to really get deep into. I'll do it without the song and just the click. Um, and so that's a good, that's always been a good, well-rounded way of getting really comfortable with the song in all, ang in all situations. The other thing. Oh, I, completely. And go ahead. Sorry. Uh, the, the last thing is there's times, many times where I, I don't, the, the song doesn't require me to play along with a click, but I will make sure that I can play along with the click and, and it feel right so that when we do the song, the tempo, the feel, all that stuff is ingrained there. Um, I, I read an yeah. article of a, a modern drummer years ago. Somebody said they would practice along with a click, whether they're working out a part or a groove or a lick, uh, to a click so they know exactly the space and the time feel that it goes into, especially if we have a habit of maybe rushing our fills or you know, yeah. different things like that. So that's all I, just adding to what you're saying, I, I totally behind you a hundred percent. 
That's yeah, and I think that you know producers are notoriously you know hard on drummers, you know, and and you can read articles and 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 stuff on on producers really beating up on drummers, you know, throughout the years, and so especially on the on the first record, you know, Michael's a great guy, and. But I learned so much working on him and him being hard on me as a drummer, you know, going, hey, look, you really got to nail this in. This fill wasn't 100% correct. This wasn't 100% right. Or or really watching your, your meter going into going into your fills. Like you said, sometimes we'll have a, we'll have a tendency to, 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 to push a fill and then lay back in when we get back in. You know, you're going from verse to chorus, let's say. You lay back into the groove during the, during the chorus. Um, you know... It, a lot of that stuff got fixed working with him. And so I think if to any of the listeners out there, if you ever find yourself in that situation where you're working with a producer or an engineer or somebody that is, you know, really critiquing your playing, go through the fire. <laughs> it will make you a better player rise to the occasion you know don't don't back down from it don't and and you know don't six months later you know if you you know you don't want to look back six months later and go oh I didn't want to do that anyhow you know I mean that's just sour grapes you 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 have to put yourself through the fire and again it to me it was like one of the ultimate drum lessons you know I mean you, you if you Think about it the other way. A second ago, we we're talking about going to Berkeley. You know, if you if you get into Berkeley School of Music or any music school, the teachers there are not going to be easy on you. They're going to beat up on you. You know, don't dig your heels in and and oh, I'm a hundred percent right. You've got it. You got to check the ego at the door and and let the let the producer let the let the the teacher let the the professor whatever it is let them let them critique you. That's what it's about. Uh, Dom Fimulera to talk about him again. I mean, he always you know man. Man sharpens man like steel sharpens steel. That's one of his things that he says all the time. And and sometimes you got to put yourself through that fire to refine it, you know. And just and 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 man, I tell you what, when you come through the other side, it, you it definitely for for me and for the members of the Sam Morrison band, I know it's made us a better group. It's made us a way better band. We're 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 way better of a group both in the studio, live, everything than we were when we started working with him. You know, we just are. And and the proof's in the pudding. I mean, uh, we've done, you know, we've to date, we've done eight albums, and we've had 11 single, uh, singles, uh, something like seven over 750,000 downloads, and we're like at 36 million streams on Spotify. Um so it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's the proofs in the pudding and, and I'm, and I am, I'm very proud of the band. I'm very proud of what we've been able to accomplish with, uh, especially, you know, working with Michael, he's a great guy and, and, and we've learned a lot from him. I think sometimes we forget what the producer's role is. It's not just Right. Uh, you know, it's not just something that you do. Well, you, you've got to have a producer. It's like, no, they're there to pull something out of you that you haven't thought of yet. They're an outside observer and giving you that perspective that we don't always have because we're so close to the music, is so close to the part, and their right. expertise to kind of see the bigger picture. And uh, and and the band and the song is a as a as a single piece and. 
There's also times when we do sessions for a songwriter or somebody that's creative where it's not necessarily a band situation. So they've hired you to play the role of drummer because that's what you do. You do that better than they do. But it's their song. It's their their project. And we've discussed right. this many times before on the podcast, and sometimes it's difficult to give that up. It's like, well, but this is a cool part. I want to do that. You know, it's like this. It's like, but the, yeah. the producer or the songwriter says, hey, can you simplify this this drum fill? Or can you play this groove on the verse? And you're thinking, man, that just doesn't seem right. But you say, yeah. hey, you, you know, you go, hey, you got it. And you do the best version of that. And like you said, the best version of Bart Robley they'll get you know, right. on that session. You've got to, you've got to be the best you that you can be, you know? And one of the things that I, I say all the time, I mean, I, you live in Nashville. I live in Southern California. Each one of us could pick up a rock right now and throw it out the window and hit 10 guys that play drums better than us. You know, I mean, there's just, there's drummers everywhere and they all are great, yeah. you know, and, and the drums are the ultimate support instrument. So when you're hired to do a job, you've got to do, you've got to be the best you that you can be and, and, um, and, you and be that support instrument. I, I watched an interview um, just the other day on YouTube with one of my favorite drummers, Kenny Aronoff. And I mean, that guy, he has more platinum and diamond albums to his name than Elton John. You know, the guy's just phenomenal at what he's been able to accomplish uh, in the in the music uh, world. I mean, he is just phenomenal. And he talks all the, he, he was talking in this interview about all the time he'll get somebody that hires him to do a session and he will, he, nine times out of 10, they'll send him demos for the session. And nine times out of 10, if he just follows that demo from, from whether it be, you know, an old school Elisa's drum machine all the way up to something he said that, you know, like a, like, uh, um, easy drummer that's programmed into the computer, um, you know, when he follows that, that's what they end up going with. They just wanted live drums. And he goes, he'll give them three versions. He'll give them the one that is exactly like, uh, like he's, you know, heard on the, on the demo, then he'll give what he would have done. Then he'll give one that's just way over the top. And he goes nine times out of 10, they stick with, in this interview he did, he, they stick with his, um, uh, they, they stick with what they have, you know, had programmed themselves, just him doing it. And dude, this, this comes from one of the most recorded drummers in, in history. I mean, that's, that's an incredible piece of advice. Don't, don't play for yourself. Don't play for other drummers, play for the song. Um, one of the things that I, I say all the time to my students, I think, you know, and I ask them, I, I go, what's the most important thing on the stage? And they'll, you know, well, you know, the, 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 the drummer, you know, or the singer or this. No, no. The most important thing on the stage is the song. That's the most important thing on the stage. Play for the song. It's not about the individual. It's about the, the cohesive sum of the whole. It's about the song. If you listen to, if you look back in history and you listen to and read interviews with Ringo, he would always play to the vocal. You know, he didn't want to step on the vocal. He did. He thought the vocal was the most important part of the song. So Ringo would play for the vocal. I mean, and you know, who's going to argue with Ringo Starr from the Beatles? You know, you can't, you can't argue with that. I mean, that's, that's success right there for sure. Is there anything particular that you can recall that that when working with Michael Bloom, 
any instruction that he gave you that you can cite as an example? I know you're talking about, you know, the click and timing and things, all those things that, that we all experience, but uh, something stylistically or approach to um, maybe that, that was a, a revelation for you. Well, you know what? Honestly, kind of along the lines of what you and I were just talking about, um, uh, playing for the song and not getting in the way of the tune, I got, um, because of the second album, when I went in and kind of proved myself to him that I could that I could read and that I could do this and play with the click, I got hired to do a whole bunch of other stuff. I've done a bunch of re-records. A lot of his business that he does uh, is is re-records for commercial use. So I've got to do a lot of that. And I've got hired, uh, we've recorded all of our original stuff with him since then. And I've been hired by a couple of other uh, singer-songwriters to buy him, through him, to play on these records. And you know, it's just that I, I went in and, and I remember one song in particular, I don't remember the the name of the song or anything, but I had this big, crazy, it was, it was only one measure, but it was a one bar drum fill, you know, and it, it just was a one bar drum fill, dugga, 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 bop, whatever it was, it was one measure. And I recorded it. And he, and he looked at me, he goes, you know, it's not a drum solo record and he cut it in half and he just used three and four, you know? And so, uh, you know, I, I was like, at first I was kind of like, well, dude, I mean, it, it works. But then I stepped back and I looked at it as, once the song was done and I was like, you know, he was right. He, you know, if, if that drum fill would have been in there, it would have stepped on the tail end of the the vocal going it was going from the verse into the chorus i do remember that so it would have stepped on the tail end of the vocal i would have stepped on her toes it was a female singer i would have stepped on her toes and it wouldn't have been as good of a job setting up the chorus so again it comes back to that playing for the song you know as far as uh, sounds and tones as well you know he's really uh, he's very experimental um, he will do, uh, you know, the, the, the Beatles, the tea towel trick and we'll put, we'll put, you know, sometimes where you're sitting at the drum set when you're playing, it's like, gosh, it's just as tough to play. And it doesn't, it doesn't sound a hundred percent. It doesn't sound like I have my drum set, but then you go in and you listen to playback. It's like, whoa, I get it. You know, and the guy's done so many hit records that he know, and he has so many tricks up his sleeve. Um, I was doing a re-record of a yes tune one time for for something. Oh wow! And I know, yeah. And I was I was walking through the studio and I noticed um, um, a microphone laying on the floor. It was in a, it was actually in a mic stand. It was an SM fifty seven of all things, and it was laying face down on the floor, like it had fallen over. You know, kabunk, and was standing on its on its face. Well, I almost picked it up, just thinking that it fell over but i thought ah, i better not maybe that's something and i walked past it well sure enough when we got done with the track he goes yeah that's my 80s microphone listen and i'm playing i'm listening to the song and yeah it's right well then all of a sudden he brought the song up here he brought that microphone up in the mix and it was like it nailed the sound i was like holy crap you know it was the simplest little thing and he he knew that so i think really just listening to what he had to say on parts not stepping on the song allowing the allowing the click to to guide me 
rather than and, and treat the click like another musician, you know, don't fight it. Just all the kind of just some of all the basic stuff, you know, I mean, that's, that's really what I learned from, from, you know, the, there were so many pieces of advice, you know, that, you know, it's, it's hard to pinpoint one of them. first book is a, a book called uh, School of Hard Rocks, and um, that is kind of an all-encompassing book. starts off with just simple quarter notes, eighth notes, and then it goes through some uh, technique stuff, some groove stuff, um, some four-way independent stuff, and it, it kind of gets in there pretty deep. And I did a DVD around that book as well. So I don't play through the whole book on the DVD, but I play through a good portion of the book on the DVD. And... Um, that was, uh, that's the one that I won the telly award for. And again, that's school of hard rocks. And then I have, um, a, uh, DVD, uh, or a book called rock and pop and snare drum, which is just a snare drum book. And, uh, same thing starts with whole notes and half notes for the little kids and goes up in through some 32 bar solos. And, um, and then I have a book that's called, it's really not really a book. It's more of a practice aid. It's called the drummer survival guide and it has the rudiments in the front and it has, um, it has a blank manuscript in the back. But then in between that, what I have is I've taken the most common ride patterns. So everything from eighth notes to 16th notes, uh, with two and four written in, uh, uh, to shuffle patterns, um, and jazz ride patterns. And both of those are all written out in, in two bar for one and two bar phrases. And you can just fill in the blank. So in other words, let's say you're okay. We're transcribing the, what's the groove in back in black by ACDC. Well, you go to the eighth note page and you write in the kick drum on one and three and the snare drum on two and four. So it's really a, a teaching aid and a, and a, um, and a uh, learning aid, and it, it kind of cuts like, you know, transcribing a groove down, uh, it cuts the time down, you know, you just fill in the blank type of thing. And I've had some pretty good success with that. And um, <clears throat> then the other two DVDs that I did, my publisher got in touch with me on one of them, and he says, hey, I'd, nobody does a... a uh, a uh, DVD. Uh, I've haven't seen anybody do anything on drum setup and tuning, so he wanted me to do a DVD on that. It's called Drums ASAP Setup and Tuning, and then the other one uh, under that same banner of ASAP, we did one called Rudimental Drumming, and I I play with some of my students on there, and we played through. Uh, we went through some rudiments, and then at the end we played this old uh, piece of marching music. I think it was put up by the Ludwig Drum Company back in the '60s, called the Red Panthers, and we all just play it on the snare drum. It's a lot of fun. So those are the those are the three books and the three DVDs. gotta hip the next generation to you know to what it is that that Bonham did and what it is that Ginger Baker did or Louis Belson or or Buddy did because you know we're playing an instrument that is arguably the oldest instrument on the planet you know I mean somewhere along the line there was some dude with a femur bone beating on a log trying to make rhythm you know and and so you've got to kind of hip the younger generation to look, this is what Bonham did and this is why it was so deep. And this is, this is what Ringo did. This is what Charlie Watts did or, or, you know, the, 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 
and and why it worked for the song and i think it's almost uh, you know our responsibility as as drumming educators to to do that i really do i think that you because without it you know their 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 legacy and their history will 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 just fade away um this year we lost uh, the great roy burns um and i'm uh, i've been with aquarian drumheads i've been an endorser of theirs endorsee of theirs since for for over 20 years and i have i'm uh, you know i am all the companies that I play, I have endorsements with. I'm very proud to say that. Aquarian Gretsch, Gibraltar, Sabian, Vicforth, Trick, Audix, uh, Kickport, Kelly Shoe, Gorilla Snot. Give a quick plug for all my, my endorsers there. But, but Roy Burns, what Roy Burns was able to do with his life and his career was so amazing. And he was such a gentleman and such a great guy. And... Um, uh, you know, so whenever I, I have this little sheet of it's, he calls it, I think it's fact sheet number four and it's just some 16th notes with paradiddles and doubles on it. And I always, when I, when I teach it, I always tell his story and tell what it was that he did in the music business. Because again, I mean, we lost him this year. He is one of the greats and, and I, you know, I personally don't want his legacy to fade away. He was, he was an incredible man and an incredible, incredible drummer, but more importantly, just a great guy you know he was just a great dude i think it's important for people to understand i mean this is one of the oldest instruments known to man and yet the drum set is one of the youngest instrument in our culture exactly (laughs) and to see the progress uh if if you use if you if you're if the student is gravitating towards Bonham, what was Bonham listening to, and what was that person? What were who were their influences beyond that? And then, who you know who carried the torch on from Bonham? To, you know, uh, you know we're we're going from Bonham to to Dave Grohl. Uh, you know, yeah. where does it? It doesn't go. It doesn't always go backwards. It sometimes goes forward. And it's like, yeah, I know you love these Foo Fighter records, but guess what? These are right. the people that Dave was listening to, and and these are some of the young players that picked up where where Dave is still still going. But uh, but you know, there's it's just it's just again, it's it's just it's building this 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 instrument um, and and the places that it's it's taken us uh, in the last hundred years has been pretty amazing and it's great to it it really is it it really is and I think the the one thing that I I would say you know to to all young players out there and everything like that is just make sure that you you know don't be afraid to put in the time don't be afraid to put in the 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 time at sounding bad and I, I think that music and sports Sports, uh, you know, equate well together. You know, again, what I said at the beginning of the podcast, when you see somebody doing something that they're really good at, you know, they're playing at the top of their game, that's years and years of hard work that you're witnessing. I mean, it's just, it's so much work that goes into it. And so I always use like an analogy with a, with a sports icon, you know, you think about Michael Jordan, 
You know, everybody knows who Michael Jordan is. Even if you don't like basketball, you know, you're, everybody knows who Michael Jordan is. Well, at one point in his life, Michael Jordan really sucked at basketball. You know, I mean, he, it was, you know, he, he didn't come out playing basketball that way. You know, he had to work so hard at that. And yes, there's natural gifts and there was certain, uh, certainly amount of natural talent there, but he nurtured that and worked at it. And we can do the same thing with drummers, you know, I mean, and, and guitar players and everything. So I tell all the young students out there, every one of my students, anyhow, don't be afraid to sound bad and don't be afraid of making mistakes. Mistakes, you don't have to worry about making mistakes because they're inevitable. You're going to make them. They're going to happen. Get past them. Learn how to get past them. Learn what to learn what to do when you make the mistake in the in the where you should learn what to do when the mistake happens live, you know, learn how to get past that. Those things are important. And, and passing that on to the, to the next generation is, is very, very, very important. It's been a blast, uh, getting to know you and speaking. And, um, again, thanks to Isaac Sanchez, uh, for connecting us. Um, what a blessing to, to have him, uh, as a friend and, uh, and supporter of the podcast. And uh, this is just another another thing that, that another example of, of his um, his vibe and generosity that we were spoke of today. Yeah. Well, Matthew, thank you so much. This uh, again, this has just been a, a true pleasure to to be on here, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the the, the end result and. And, uh, and yeah, Isaac is, dude, I'm telling you, I, I, I know what I said. I mean, when I ran into him the other day at the grocery store, I was like, you know, you just can't help but feel better. You know, when you, when you see the guy, he's just a great dude. And, and this has been a real treat. And, and again, just being part of the, of the working drummer alumni now, you know, being, going to be on here is just really cool. I, I meant what I said at the beginning. I'm a total nerd and a geek about this and, and I really appreciate it. This is very cool. Thank you. Well, listen, keep in touch, um, and I'll do the same, and and have a great week, and and thanks again so much for your time, Bart. Oh, Matthew, thank you for your time. I'll I'll look forward to it, and uh, you'll hear from me soon, my friend. All right. Great, man. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye-bye. So I can't say it enough. Thanks to Isaac Sanchez for connecting us with Bart. Uh, Isaac has been a huge supporter and friend of the podcast for a long time, and we appreciate him. And thanks so much to Bart for taking the time to speak with me and sharing his teaching practice and the diversification that he maintains in keeping himself busy as a full-time musician. It's it's inspiring, uh, especially if you are interested in doing more teaching and just looking at the landscape of the music business and, and creating some diversity, and Bart's just a great example of that. Uh, stay tuned next week for Zach's episode. We uh, just got off the phone together uh, today. We were talking about our 200th episode coming up in January. It's really hard to believe, but we're going to be coming upon four years. We, our first episode came out in January of 2015. And so we are planning a live event, a streaming live event with, uh, right now, again, very beginning stages but uh, roundtable discussion, um, question and answer session. uh, It's probably somewhere in Nashville. And as we get more details together, we will share that with you. But we just want to put a bug in your ear. It is Halloween 2018 right now, the night that I'm recording this. But I want to let you know that we are months away from our 200th episode and probably the second week of January 2019. 
somewhere in town in here in Nashville. If you're visiting or if you plan to be in town, please join us. We're really looking forward to celebrating the time that we've had doing this podcast, sharing it with you, having all the wonderful guests and interaction with listeners and creating this community. So come celebrate with us. Uh, and that's it. And I really hope to see you all there and more again, more information as, as it comes closer. Thanks. Hope to see you around. Bye-bye.